we are uh, finishing our series that we were on entitled Breaking Bread. And in this series, we are talking about how the, the people of God can be spiritually well-fed. Um, in the first week, we talked about how the pastor, the, the shepherd of the congregation, is responsible for making sure that good spiritual food is available to the flock. It's my job to cook the food and set the buffet table uh, in front of the congregation to ensure that you guys have access to good content, good teaching, that I'm available to you for counseling, and and a various uh, mix uh, of responsibilities that I have to make sure that you are well-fed. So that was week one. In the second week, we talked about the responsibility of the family unit, that church is supposed to happen at home that dads are supposed to be leading their families, parents are supposed to be leading their kids, that it's not the job of the church to raise spiritually healthy children, that is the job of the family. So, feed your family. Then, two weeks ago, in the third installment of this Breaking Bread series, we talked about the role of the individual. That as individuals, we must be doing all that we can to invest in our relationship with the Lord. That no one else can have a relationship with God for you. We talked about the fact that God doesn't have grandchildren. And by that we mean your faith can't be your parents' faith or your grandparents' faith or anyone else's faith. It must be your faith. And so you have to be the one to invest in it. You have to be the one to to read in the Word every day. You have to be the one to decide to obey the Word. You have to be the one who's connecting with God in prayer. Nobody can do those things for you. No one can hold your hand and spoon-feed you for your entire life. It is the role of the individual to invest in their relationship with God. Then, of course, last week we took a short hiatus from this series to talk about um, incredibly important uh, racial issues facing our nation. And so tonight we're going to finish this series, uh, Breaking Bread, uh, talking about the role of the church, the church as a whole. So, in its simplest form, the role of the church is to make disciples of Christ. And that is both an individual and a corporate responsibility. So the role of the church is to make disciples of Christ. And that is an individual and a corporate responsibility. Let's break that down. We know that the world is broken and without hope. And the church has that eternal love and that eternal hope that the world needs. That is, the gospel of Christ. So, our primary function in life, what comes above all else, the one thing that is more important than anything else that we do, is to share the love of Christ, to love, to serve, to share, to play our role in the story of redemption. That comes above all else. That is in part, an individual responsibility, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's not just the job of the pastor. It's not just the job of the super-Christian or the church leader or the people who are specially gifted. It is the role of every single Christian to do the work of evangelism and discipleship. Every single one of us has been called to be a part uh, of this story of redemption. Every single one of us. If you are a Christian, you are called. There is no one who is a Christian who is not called. You don't get to be one or the other. If Christ has saved you, Christ has called you. So it's an individual responsibility, but it's also a corporate responsibility. And those two things are connected. We are both individual and corporate. This thing that we do, we are in this together as a body. We're not just a bunch of autonomous agents running around doing this on our own. We are connected in the body of Christ. And so we have to place ourselves consistently within that context. We have to remember that every decision we make, every uh, word that we speak, every action we commit represents not only ourselves as individuals, it represents Christ and it represents the church. The body of Christ is only as strong as its weakest members. 
Everything we do uh, represents and reflects everyone else. There's no such thing as following Christ or failing to follow Christ in a vacuum. You can't just do this on your own. Everything you do is either helping or hurting the body. And that's a tremendous responsibility. What I do will affect the body. So, in this series, Breaking Bread, again, we've been talking about how to make sure everyone is spiritually well-fed. And so tonight, what I want to talk about is that the church, as individuals and as a group, is called to make sure that everyone around us is being well-fed spiritually. It is our job to lead as servants and servers. But sadly, right now, in our culture, the church is far too concerned with just being right. Um, Over the past few weeks, I have made the mistake of spending too much time on Facebook. It is a problem that I'm sure many of us can identify with. And I keep telling myself, I need to limit the amount of time that I spend on there. Um, But, as you know, it's easy to just get caught in the endless scroll, right? When you're bored, when there's nothing else to do, when it's just kind of your default. You go and you keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and it never ends. Uh, Literally, it's designed to be endless. And so you get caught in this endless scroll. And in this, you know, I've been overloaded with images and memes and posts and and messages. And that in and of itself isn't necessarily a bad thing, um, as this incredibly wide range of emotion is expressed. Um, After all, we live in a time of incredible turmoil right now. So that in and of itself isn't isn't bad. But what's, what's frustrated me so much is... The, the stuff that I see posted by Christians, the people that know Jesus, or at least claim to know Jesus, are posting some of the dumbest things I've ever seen. Okay, Christian, if you are a believer, may I speak to you for just a moment? We together right now are posting online some of the dumbest stuff in all of human history. Okay? And it's ridiculous. It needs to stop. Instead of feeding and leading, we have been impeding. Impeding the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as members of the church, we need to stop doing that. Now, individually to the members of this congregation, the after church, I will say that the things that you guys have posted that I've seen have been very, very good. And not only the things that you've posted on your own pages, I've also been very proud as I've watched you interacting on other people's posts, defending the truth and calling people out when they need to be called out. I was, uh, I was on Facebook the other night and, and someone had posted nonsense. And, and one of our church members uh, was there in the comments saying, you really need to think about what you're posting. This is not helping the body. And I was like... Yeah, man, go get them. That, that makes me proud as a pastor. But as, as a church in America, collectively, as a whole, um, it has been pretty terrible. <laughs> and, and I think that we need to check ourselves. Because, again, instead of feeding and leading, we have been impeding. And we need to stop impeding the advancement of the gospel through the way that we are interacting with the world. So, tonight, uh, we are going to be in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So, if you've got your Bibles, uh, open there or navigate there on your device uh, to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It says this, So, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. I feel like I need to read that one more time. And trust me, we're going to focus on this verse. Put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. If you're one of those people that underlines verses in your Bible, 
And this is a good one to underline. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whomever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And that is the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 2, verses 1-12. through Now, Before we jump into the main points of the sermon, I want to first start with this idea. This passage clearly teaches us about the idea of the priesthood of believers. The priesthood of believers. This word, priesthood, is mentioned a couple of times in this passage. For example, in verse 5 it says that you are called to be a holy priesthood. Verse 9, you're a chosen race, you are a holy priesthood. So, that means that every single believer is called to be a minister of the gospel. Like I was saying at the beginning, if you are Christian, you are called. There is no such thing as a believer who is able to stand on the sidelines and be alright with God. The expectation that God has of every single one of us is that we are engaged in the mission of the gospel. Every one of us. And that means that it's not just for super Christians, it's not just for church leaders, it's not just for pastors, it's not just for other people that are more gifted than we are. If you are a Christian, you are called, and you are gifted, and God equips you with everything you need for life and godliness. You are called to minister. Every one of us is to be a part of the priesthood of believers. None of us gets to sit on the sidelines. That's not a part of what we have been called to. He has not only saved you from something, which is sin, he has also saved you to something. And that is mission. Every single one of us has been saved out of sin and in to mission as the priesthood of Believers. So that means that we have some very important responsibilities. Uh, Point number one is this stop feeding the noise. Stop feeding the noise. Let's look again, please, at verse one. And as I do this, really focus on these words and think about things that are being said and posted. Peter says, Put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. My gosh, an entire sermon could be preached right here. Many sermons could be preached just on this verse alone. And you know me, I can go for an hour. I could easily go for an hour just on this one verse. Put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. People of the church, I beg you, wake up. 
Open your eyes. Listen, I do not care what your political stance is. I don't care what candidate is your favorite. I don't care what your opinion is on whatever social issue that we're talking about, where you stand on the virus or the pandemic or the shutdown or government regulations or the president or or anything else. Every single one of us is going to have our own opinions that hopefully we have reasonably worked through to reach conclusions on those items. That is between you and God. I don't care where you stand on that. But what I do care about is how you are treating the people around you. What I do care about is how you are communicating. What I do care about is how you are or are not sharing the love of Christ with people. When I go online and I see Christians who are posting stuff where they're spewing all kinds of malicious words, who are acting like they are all high and mighty, yet they are hypocritical, who are speaking all kinds of slander, and they're just throwing this stuff out. Guys, are we not aware of the power of the words that we are using? Earlier this week, I was having our family devotions with the kids. And we were reading out of James chapter 3, where James talks about the power of the tongue, where, where he says that though it is small, like a rudder of a ship, it is powerful, and that it is like a spark that can light an entire forest on fire. That one little part of our body, our tongue, has the power to do tremendous good or tremendous harm. And yet so many Christians right now are being so callous and, 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 and just willy-nilly about the things that they are saying. Jesus always spoke the truth. Always. Jesus always represented what was right. But he did so in a way that was filled with so much love and care that the sinners were drawn to him like a magnet. Jesus somehow balanced truth and love so effectively that without shying away from truth, the people that needed it the most, the people that had been rejected by the religious elite, the people that had been deemed unworthy, those were the people that wanted to be around him more than anyone else because they could see in his eyes and in the way that he treated them that he would do anything for them. That he would lay his life down for them. And that's exactly what he did. That's how we as Christians need to be acting and treating others and loving and communicating. Look, I I scroll through social media and there's so many Christians who are posting statuses in all caps. Well, I think this. Here's the deal. I don't even care if what you are saying is factually correct. That if the content of your post is is factually correct. And, and spoiler alert, a lot of times it isn't. Okay, Fact-checking has gone the way of the dinosaur, sadly. But even if what you are saying is factually correct, you have to ask the question, am I speaking the truth in love? Am I more concerned with being proven right than I am with loving my neighbor? Am I meeting the spiritual needs of the broken? Or do I just want to show everyone how smart I am and that everyone should listen to what I have to say? Christians, look me in the eye. Please, stop feeding the noise. The world is filled with it. And you and I are not called to feed the noise. We're called to feed the hungry. We're called to be the light of of the world, a city on a hill. Let's not be like all the other people that are just spewing opinion off the hip, okay? Uh, Point number two, start feeding your soul. Uh, Look with me at verse two here. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Like spiritual infants crave pure spiritual milk. Crave. That word, crave, what that talks about is a desire that overcomes us. It is all-consuming. In the moment when you're craving something, it's not just that you want it. You feel like 
you need it. So uh, right now, as most of you know, my wife is almost 20 weeks pregnant. Okay, so she's almost halfway there. And in this particular pregnancy, she has had some odd, uh, strange, off-the-wall cravings. And whenever my wife has a craving, it's not that she wants a particular food. She needs it. For example, there was one situation a few weeks ago where she said to me, Babe, I need Taco Bell. And I said, Well, I'm not sure I want to go out. This was about a month ago before things started started to open up. I said, I'm not sure I want to go out and you know there's risk involved and all that. And, and she said, No, no, no. You don't understand. I need Taco Bell. We need Taco Bell now. And so being the heroic husband that I am, I drove to Taco Bell, came back, and my wife had what I can only describe as a spiritual experience with Taco Bell. There may have even been, been a tear in her eye, and I looked over, and I, I was like, I've never seen so, someone so happy about Taco Bell. And she's like, you have no idea what you have done for me today. <laughs> it's the easiest thing I've ever done to reach hero status, okay? But in that moment, a craving had taken over. Here, Peter talks about the fact that our longing, our craving, should be for spiritual milk. She says, I regret nothing. It was the baby. I agree with you, babe. (laughs) Um, Peter says that our craving should be for spiritual milk. Is that what we're really thirsty for right now? Right now, is that really what we're wanting? More than anything else, to feed our souls... Or are we more concerned with feeding our flesh? Are we more concerned with being proven right? Peter says that our longing should be for pure spiritual food, for truth, but not truth so that we can weaponize it against other people, not craving for truth so that we can use it as a tool for being a champion in culture, truth so that we can hold it as this this obstacle that other people will trip over and we'll have to stand behind it and go, see, I told you so. That's not what, what Peter is talking about. He's talking about craving spiritual food because I need it. Because my soul is hungry. Because I know how desperately I need God to feed my empty soul. I need what God has for me. That requires humility. That requires admitting our own need before God and admitting that I am no better than anyone else. I need that spiritual food. Every day, so do you. And so we need to be feeding ourselves with it because if we're feeding ourselves with other stuff, that other stuff is what's going to come out when we interact with others. So start feeding your soul. Point number three, come to the table and bring others with you. Come to the table and bring others with you. Look at how verse four begins. As you come to him. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. It is only when you come to Jesus that you can ever be truly changed. It is only when you come to Jesus that you can ever be united with others. Look at the order that's given in this passage. There's a step-by-step process that's given. The first is you come to Jesus. Then, if we continue reading, we find that after coming to Jesus, you become a living stone that's joined together with others. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, you come to Jesus, then you become a living stone, one among many, and then together, as a priesthood, you are offering sacrifices sacrifices to God. We don't just come to Jesus by ourselves and stay there. We come to Jesus and we get linked up with others who have been brought to Christ and we are like stones that are built one upon another to build a spiritual house 
in God's name, where his name might be praised and lifted high, where we might offer spiritual sacrifices to him. We are called not as individuals, but as a corporate body. That is how we are unified. So we come to the table and we bring everyone else with us. I want you to consider for just a moment here the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ. The 12 disciples who went everywhere with him for a period of three years. And then after Jesus ascended into heaven, these were the guys, save Judas, these were the guys who went off together to change the world. Let's not uh, overlook the differences represented in that group, specifically the affiliations that these gentlemen had before they were called by Christ. We are talking about the most ragtag, unlikely band of dum-dums that you could possibly come up with. Think about the individuals there. You have James and John, these two brothers, who earn themselves the nickname Sons of Thunder because they're a couple of goons. Then you have Matthew, who is a tax collector. Some of you may know tax collectors were among the most hated people in society in that day. Why? Because they worked for the Roman Empire that was oppressing the Jewish people. And so any tax collector would have been hated by everyone in Jewish culture. But Matthew especially would have been hated because not only was he a tax collector working for Rome, he himself was a Jew. So that means he has betrayed his own people to work for the enemy to rob and steal from his own kind. So he would have been doubly hated as a Roman lackey. Then pair him up with Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. That word zealot means that this was a group of people who wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire via anarchy, chaos, and war. These were domestic terrorists. Okay? So this is sort of like taking a, a, a dirty cop and an Antifa member and making them study buddies. <laughs> See how that works out for you. Next, we have Peter, who is almost exclusively known throughout most of his life as someone who can't stop running his mouth, as someone who has to always spew his own egotistical opinion, as someone who's always putting his foot in his mouth because of the things that he says. He won't shut up. Then we have John, who is probably a teenager at the time, who's the runt of the group, who's always just trying to catch up. We, we have Judas the thief. We have this group of uneducated, blue-collar workers. And then you have the fact that outside of the Twelve, Jesus routinely hung out with women as equals in an incredibly sexist society. This is one of the most unlikely groups that you could possibly conceive or imagine. If we were to take that in, into our normal, or into our modern world, this would kind of be like taking a staunch Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, progressive, never Trumper, MAGA hat wearer, uh, and, and conservative, all these people, and, and throwing them in a small group and saying, "You guys work together and go change the world." That sounds impossible. There's only one thing that can make it possible, and it's the one thing that these people had in common. Jesus. The one thing these people had in common was Jesus. And they put aside their differences, not without conflict, but they put aside all of the disparity between their views, and they indeed followed Christ into a life that would change the world. That's exactly what we have been called to as well. If you cannot sit at a table with someone who has a political opposite, you need to check yourself. If you cannot sit at a table with someone whose views you hate, you need to check yourself. If we as a body, if we as Christians cannot put aside our differences and take the one thing we have in common, which is Christ, we need to check ourselves. This is the most important thing in life. Everything else is secondary. So you need to stop putting anything else above that. This is 
point number four. Remember who you are and whose you are. This is something that my dad would say to me a lot when I was growing up, especially in middle school and in high school, and especially when he was dropping me off somewhere where I'd be around other people. He would say to me, dude, remember who you are and remember whose you are. He was reminding me of my identity. He was reminding me that I have a responsibility based upon that identity. And I think there's a lot of Christians that need to hear that admonishment right now. Remember who you are and remember whose you are. Because there's a lot of, uh, of Christians right now who are forgetting where their allegiance is supposed to lie. Look at verse 9. It says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He is speaking to the church. Okay? He is speaking to all who would come to faith through these people as well. This is an admonishment to all of us. And all of us together from our various backgrounds, from our various views and stances, all together as one in Jesus Christ, he says, you are a holy nation. We together are a holy nation. Now, decidedly missing from this verse is American. We are not primarily American. We are first and foremost Christian. We are a part of a nation that is not of this world. And we conflate the two far too often. We, we conflate Israel and America. It's not Israel and America. It's Israel and the church. That's a huge difference that we need to note. I was talking to Allison about this earlier, and, and she put it beautifully. She said, um, we need to be careful what team we're representing. There's so much blue team versus red team that people aren't seeing that we are on Christ's team. Christ's team. This country, this gospel is not American. It is not white. It is not Western. This is a gospel of a nation that is not of this world. The kingdom of God. Hear me clearly. Jesus does not fly stars and bars. Okay? Jesus does not wave an American flag. Our allegiance lies to the kingdom before it lies with our nation. Uh, Listen, as I'm saying this, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be proud that we're Americans. I'm very proud that I'm an American. I'm very proud that I'm a Puerto Rican American. I'm very proud that I get to live in this incredible nation. It's a wonderful, awesome place to live. It is a gift that God has given me. And I enjoy that God has given me a gift that so many people other don't have. That's wonderful. But God has also given me this house These four walls, though they are a tremendous gift, do not define me. I view these four walls as a gift from God, a place where I get to live and do his ministry. It's the same thing with our nation. He has given us this country as a gift, not as an identity. It's a gift, not an identity. Are you a Christian first, or are you an American first? Is your political party your identity? Do you just fall in line with all the other Democrats or Republicans or or Libertarians or, or whomever? If your first allegiance isn't to Jesus, check yourself. Remember who you are and whose you are. Point number five. You are called to lead and feed. This goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the priesthood. Let's read verse 9 once more. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, here's here's the, the, the mission that comes with the identity, that 
you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are both chosen and called. You are called to minister, period. If you're saved, you're called. Those two are intrinsically connected. You are called to declare and proclaim the gospel. You are called to to share with others how Christ called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. This is not just the job of the pastor, though it is my job too. This is not just the job of the gathered church on Sunday. This is not just the role of Christian families as they sit together at home. This is the job of every Christian everywhere, in every nation, in every city, town, wherever. If you are a Christian, you are called to be in the holy priesthood. You are called to lead and feed in every relationship that you have with another human being. Again, members of the After Church, I ask you, what is our mission statement? I'll give you a moment to say it out loud. Our mission statement is... Right. The mission starts after church. That's exactly what we're talking about here. We are called to be the ones to bring the gospel wherever we go. Not just on Sunday, but Monday when we go back to work. When we go home to be with our families. When we go out to be with our friends. When we are interacting with people in our jobs, in our classes, in our social circles, in our oikos. That's a Greek word that means our little part of the world, our our unit. We're called to be the gospel there. To lead and to feed. Point number six. Don't forget that you were starving. Don't forget that you We're starving. Look with me at verse 10, where essentially Peter says, remember where you came from. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Ladies and gentlemen, have we forgotten where we came from? Have we forgotten what we were when Christ called us? Have we forgotten our own desperate need for the grace of God? I fear that's exactly where so many of us are. We have become like Pharisees who are acting like we are better than everyone else, who know the rules of the Bible so well, and we look down our noses with judgment at all the sinners who aren't getting it right yet. Peter here reminds us, you were not a people. You had not received mercy. Now you have. He says, remember where you came from. Remember where you were when Christ found you, when Christ redeemed you. You were a desperate sinner in need of the grace and mercy of God with nothing good to offer in and of yourself, with no good works that would earn your way to him, and yet God loved you. Anyway, you were an enemy of God, fighting against him, and he laid down his life to save you. How dare we act like we're any better than anyone else? Um, In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus speaks the parable of the unforgiving servant. And, And let me just briefly read that for you in Matthew 18. He says, Peter came up to him. And said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. Okay, let's put that in real world terms right now. Ten thousand talents would be hundreds of billions of dollars. The the point of this number is it's an astronomical number no one could repay. Way too much money. How he became this indebted, who even knows? The the original hearers would have been like, oh my God, 10,000 talents. What did this guy do? Since he could not pay, 
His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's like a week's worth of pay. And seizing him, he, cho- he began to choke him, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. And he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Do not forget, dear Christian, you and I, have been shown mercy. Mercy on a debt that we could never repay. A sin debt that was so insurmountable, no amount of good works was ever going to get us out of it. And when we fell on our knees before God and pleaded Him for grace, He gave it to us. So how dare we then treat other people with a lack of mercy? How dare we take people who have such a small debt against us and treat them like they are not any less deserving of the mercy that God has given us? Do not be a wicked servant. Do not be someone who forgets that Christ has shown you mercy. If you will not show mercy to other people, you need to check yourself. And I understand, trust me, Allison and I were talking about it earlier today. It is hard, hard to look at some of the things that people say and and love people. It's hard. You look at, at people and you're like, I have to love these idiots? Yes, we do. And that is difficult. It's hard. But let's not forget that Christ has loved me. And I sin against him so terribly still all the time. And yet, he doesn't throw me out. He continues to show me grace. continues to show me mercy. We must do the same. Finally, point number seven. Yes, it is a seven-point sermon. Honor the Lord. Honor the guests. Honor the table. Look with me now at verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. God, let me read that again. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak to you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter begins verse 11, by saying, I urge you. The the word in the Greek there for urge is the word parakaleo. This word can mean to beg. It, it can mean to plead. But primarily what it means is to come alongside and encourage. So for this word, picture you are running a race. And as you're running a race, as you're approaching the finish line, you see that another runner has injured himself and has fallen down. And so you go over to that runner and and you pick them up and and you put their arm across your shoulder and and you put your arm around theirs and you say to them, let's do this together. Let let me urge you forward. That's what the word parakaleo means. Uh, It's coincidentally the same word that's often used to describe the Holy Spirit. Paraclete. That means that he is our helper who is comforting and urging us forward saying to us, let's do this together. And so Peter is saying to the people in this passage, I'm coming alongside you to urge you onward in this. 
My friends, I know that I've been hard on you tonight, but I am coming alongside you, urging you, pleading with you in this. For the love of God, for all that is holy and right, please keep your conduct honorable. (laughs) I feel like we shouldn't even have to say that, but we do. Do not let your flesh take control. Do not let your emotions rule your conduct. Do not let your words be be driven by pride or, or a desire to be right. Don't live a life where you are giving in to sin. He he says uh, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. I cannot emphasize this strongly enough. In the sweet name of Jesus, please keep your conduct honorable. I am not, in this particular moment, arguing that you have a particular viewpoint. Again, those things are between you and God. But in the name of Jesus, Christian, hear me. Be honorable among the Gentiles. Because the world is watching. They are listening. They are noticing. And what so often they are seeing is not the love of Christ sprinkled with grace. What they are seeing is a bunch of proud little children boasting in the rights that God has given them. It's not what God has called us to. We are to keep our conduct honorable. We are not going to win them over with our clever memes or or, or our genius arguments. We're not going to win them over with our hard evidence. We're not going to win anybody over by posting long things on Facebook saying, this is why I'm right and this is why you are wrong. Did you notice what he said is going to win them over? I closed the book. He said, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What is it that will win them over? Your good. They will be won over by your love. They will be won over by your Christ-likeness. And so, if you are more concerned with bashing people with truth, you are not working for the kingdom. You are working for your own name. You are to keep your conduct honorable and loving and gracious and merciful. You honor the Lord. You honor the guest. You honor the table of food that God has given you to share with others. Guys, more than ever, now in this time in our nation, the church needs to lead and feed. We need to be feeding the spiritually hungry. That must be our greatest concern. And like we talked about last week, we need to figure out how to fight for causes uh, that that need uh, uh, to be fought for. We, We need to defend those who are uh, uh, who are weak and voiceless and underprivileged. All of that is true. But all of that must fit under the umbrella of the most important thing, and that is making Christ known. Speaking the truth in love. Leading people to Jesus. That is what is going to make the eternal difference. Nothing else. We are to be Christians first. Everything else, everything else is second to that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything else, that'll take care of itself. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this evening that you've given us uh, to hear from your word. God, I pray that you would convict us. Lord, I pray that each one of us would examine our hearts before you. That each one of us would see the places where we have been guilty And God, that you would help us to repent. That you would help us to be people who are honorable and gracious and merciful and loving and filled with truth. Lord, I pray that what people see when they look at us 
is the love and the good of Jesus. Truth, absolutely, but spoken in love and grace. Help us to be like Christ, loving people in such a way that they know we would do absolutely anything for them, even if they're on the opposite side of the aisle or the opposite side of the tracks. Help us to be people who attract others with your loving kindness, for your word says that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone listening this evening uh, or later on on the podcast who has never given their lives to you, perhaps never experienced firsthand for themselves your goodness, like we talked about in the verse where it said, if indeed you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. God, I pray that if there's anyone listening who needs to taste and see that the Lord is good, that tonight you would call them to yourself that they would reach out to someone, that they would send a message to the church or, or send a message to a member of our church saying, I need to know who this Jesus is. I need to taste and see that the Lord is good. God, I pray that you would lead us as people to be the ambassadors of the gospel in our nation with an allegiance to the kingdom above all. God, I pray that this has encouraged us and equipped us to live out the gospel every single day. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember that the mission starts after church. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for tuning in this evening. And uh, I invite you to join us at Bethel University next Sunday. Stay tuned to our Facebook page this week for more details concerning that service. We'd love to hear from you if you're planning on coming. We'd love for you to reach out and let us know that you'd love to come for a visit because we'd like to minister to you specifically next week when we finally meet you in person. But for all of us, I know that we're greatly looking forward to not having to do this any longer, but to gather together as a body and worship the name of Jesus in relationship like we were designed to do. So thank you for tuning in tonight, and Lord willing, I look forward to seeing many of you next week at Bethel at 5.30 p.m. Love you guys. Have a great night.